Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Adult Learners Week is an annual campaign which celebrates and promotes learning opportunities for everyone. The campaign provides a focus to promote formal and informal opportunities and to celebrate lifelong learning. This is not an area which has been ignored by the Welsh Government, with the Tertiary Education and Research Wales Act recently establishing the Commission for Tertiary Education and Research. There has also been a significant focus on the skills agenda, with numerous Welsh Government plans to meet the skills of emerging industries. But are these just more bookshelf detritus, or are the Welsh Government rising to meet the challenge of a changing education and work landscape? Joining us to discuss this and more are Michelle Matheron, uh, who is Assistant Director for External Affairs at the Open University in Wales. Hello, Michelle. Hiya, thanks for having me. Thank you very much for being with us. And Joshua Miles, Director for Wales at the Learning and Work Institute. Hello, Josh. Thanks for having me. Yeah, nice to see you. Wonderful. Mr Davis, take us away. You both work in this sector and you're familiar with adult learning, but a lot of our listeners might not be so familiar with the organisations you represent and what you do. Michelle, I think many will have heard of the Open University, but what, what do you do in the 21st century? Well, I think you're right, Kerry, in the sense that um, when when I started working at the OU, it became really clear that everyone's got some sort of OU connection. So um, it is kind of everywhere and and lots of people tend to have a kind of OU story in their family. My mum did an OU degree when I was younger, actually. Um, But yeah, so we uh, we're the largest largest provider of part time higher education um, in Wales. Um, So we've got almost 15,000 students across Wales. So we provide part time, flexible learning opportunities. Um, and traditionally, what a lot of people will be familiar with is the kind of old school uh, way that that was done back 50 odd years ago when the OU started, which was through our TV uh, relationship, our programmes on the BBC, those late night programmes that everyone had to kind of set their video to record. But um, yeah, in the 21st century, things are quite different. Um, so uh, we still have a strong relationship with the BBC and we co-produce a lot of programmes with them as part of our kind of educational mission. But a lot of our learning now is done online and most of our um, students will study kind of flexibly online in their own time. Um, So uh, they will, you know, receive their course materials um, and they will be studying at a time that suits them, which means that OU provision um, really does appeal to a really wide range of people. So a lot of our students are in work. A lot of our students are carers. Some of our students may do work that has quite different sort of uh, time patterns. So shift workers, for example, or people who kind of uh, working overseas, that kind of thing. So we we are flexible by our very nature and open. Um, we have an open entry policy, meaning that you don't need traditional higher higher education entry qualifications to study with us. Which means that we do, um, you know, take on learners with all sorts of different backgrounds, particularly sometimes those who haven't had um, the best experience of school or a first kind of go at university the first time around. Um, and we're there to support them because you know we believe. Uh, that everyone has the potential to achieve, you know, university level of education. And and we want to make that available to everyone who wants to benefit from it. Really is an excellent organisation, and I imagine uh, very well placed for the 21st century. But Josh, I I, I was familiar with the Open University, uh, but the Learning and Work Institute, I had heard of, but don't know much about it. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah, absolutely, no problem. And just first of all, um, my father was uh, an OU uh, graduate as well, Michelle, so I had a very similar experience to you, and I think he did it God, many years ago now and has been learning with the OU ever since. So, um, yeah, I know what it feels like to have a parent uh, in the lifelong learning mind space, which is great. 
So the Learning and Work Institute, we are an independent policy research and development organisation dedicated to lifelong learning, full employment and inclusion. So it does what it says on the tin, really. It is more simplest. It's learning and work. But really, our job is to research what works, influence policy, develop new ways of thinking and try and help implement new approaches. So to come up with a few new ideas to get us um get us delivering things a bit better in this space. And we do that by working with a range of partners. WelshGov is an obvious one, but we're also really embedded in the landscape. So we work with the OU loads, as as you've heard from uh, Michelle earlier on, but also with other organisations in any type of learning sort of scenario, really. So, yeah, it's a really interesting place to be. It, it really is an interesting place, and it, it very much resonates with my beliefs that uh, you know, it's where we need to be going in uh, in society, that lifelong learning. But this is Adult Learning Week. Where are we in Wales uh, with adult learning now? Are we in a good place? Josh, do you want to pick that up first? Yes, I think um, in the opening remarks, actually, you kind of hit on it straight away, which is most people would understand the education system um in its sort of traditional guise. So when people think of learning, you think of going to school, you think of going to college, you think of going to university, and you think of leaving again a job, which, you know, is really interesting, but is only really part of the, the system in its entirety. Um, for lots of people, that's not how it works. You know, you might have an exit point on education at different points and then come back to learning much later on. And that part of the system is just much less understood. So the first problem we've got, I think, is one of a lack of understanding, lack of comprehension of what adult learning is and how different types of learning can take place outside of the formal sort of route up until 19. As you'd expect, the funding follows that. So a lot of money goes into getting the, the sort of pipeline right, which is absolutely the right thing to do, getting young people to be educated, the first time is the right way to do it but as a result it's always a little bit of a political fight then to get um, resources into areas outside of the traditional um, up to sort of 19 21 year old uh, type of education and I would say that fight has become a little bit more difficult in the last 10-15 years there's no doubt about it austerity has had a massive impact on budgets across the board and it's easier to, to cut budgets in terms of adult and lifelong learning um, compared to the, the sort of traditional education system. So we've seen quite a lot of that. And um, what you've really seen, I think, is, you know, the best intentions from Welsh Government in the face of quite a challenging fiscal environment. Um, and gradually we've sort of reduced the concept of what funded adult learning is to more economic matters, I'd say. So um, fewer people learning because they want to learn something or there's a sort of health benefit or confidence benefit and much more emphasis on, you know, how, how this learning relates on getting a job and those sorts of things, which I think is just the, the nature of the beast over the last 10, 15 years. But I would say where we are now is we've got really good sort of policy narrative, a very supportive minister. The key now is, is how do we solve the resource problem and, and start to do more in this area? Um, and that's hopefully where CETA can come in and, and start to look at things a little bit differently. I just wanted to come in on, on that in terms of an area where we have seen um, a change and a, a very Wales specific change has been the increase in the number of part time students at HE level. And this has come about as a result of the review of student funding and finance, which which took place and, and you know, the diamond review, as it was known. So that the, the changes then kicked in in, in 2018. 
I mean, that that created changes to the whole HE, you know, funding and finance system. So full time students benefited from that as well. But what that did was to really recognise some of the issues that we'd seen here, but also particularly in England, where um, part time students aren't eligible for maintenance support. And it really recognised the difference that part time students kind of, um, you know, their different circumstances. For example, at the OU, since that change in, in funding support, we've had a 69 percent increase in the number of students studying with us. So it has made an enormous impact. It has shown that the desire is there for people to want to learn, to want to change career, to want to improve themselves. What was needed was the right finance package to be in place to support those learners and not to assume that just because somebody might be studying part time and not going to a brick university to study, that they didn't need maintenance to support in order to enable that to happen. So that has been a significant change. What hasn't quite followed suit has been funding for the institutions to enable to grow that provision. And we are still in a situation where the OU is really, you know, the main provider of part-time HE. And, you know, I, I shouldn't be coming on arguing for competition, but actually in terms of what's right for the learner, I do think that Welsh government probably do need to look a little bit more at how they should be incentivizing other institutions to offer part-time opportunities, because actually that's what's right for citizens of Wales, essentially. So that is an example of where, you know, Welsh government really has led the way there. And our colleagues in England look at us, you know, with envy in terms of the the resources that part-time students have access to and the opportunities we are therefore able to kind of give to them. But in terms of the other adult learning community provision, I would I would echo what Josh has said, where I think there has been a shrinking of what's available. And for us, those are the pathways in to our learning. So, you know, not everyone is HE ready. And, you know, we we want to make sure that people have opportunities to study at FE level, you know, A level, um, you know, in the community to build their confidence, to enable them to think about those next steps at, at a higher education level. So those are really important pathways in to that higher level education. Josh, you mentioned there having a supportive minister. Um, I'm not going to deny that for a second, but I will say that the Welsh Government used to specifically have a Minister for, or Deputy Minister for Lifelong Learning. Is that something you think needs to be resurrected, or do you think the current ministerial framework and division of responsibilities works well enough? I think you've got to see it, to be honest, in the context of capacity in the institution. So we're, we're chatting today. I'm not sure when this is going to go out, but uh, today is the day the Welsh Government has launched its uh, proposals on increasing the number of Senate members. And there's a really key part of that, which is around increasing the number of ministers as well. Um, it's always difficult trying to cut portfolios up across such a broad range of responsibilities into 12, which is what we do at the moment, or 14 in practice with the First Minister and the Council General. I would imagine, you know, post the next election, when we're talking about a much bigger cabinet, you probably would see a deputy minister for the sort of post compulsory learning piece. And I think that probably would be a good thing. Um, no doubt about it. I think the, the minister has, has got a great passion in this area and he's he's really set his stall out, um, you know, quite notably to try and drive things forward. But he's also got a really big job. So, um, so yeah, I think in an ideal world with a bigger cabinet, I think we'll be in a better position to have a, a minister who can really get into the, the detail on this. But um, we're not quite in that ideal world yet. I think um, there's a wider piece as well about the fact that the skills agenda sits within the economy ministry. So, I mean, that is that is an important kind of crossover as well. And I think that that needs to be factored into consideration. I agree with Josh. I think that, the, you know, the announcement we've seen today 
does potentially offer an opportunity to rethink, you know, some, how some of this is carved up. I don't necessarily feel that it would be in the spirit of the new commission and its work to have a minister for universities. Um, I think that actually what we need to be doing is what the commission is intended to do, which is to look forward and think about post-compulsory education across a spectrum. Um, and that actually, if there is, you know, um, a minister for post-16 or whatever that might look like, however you want to carve that up, the important bit is that it's somebody who can focus on how we can offer opportunities that might involve someone transitioning in and out of the different bits of that that kind of sector um, and, and trying to um, do even more to encourage providers in the post-16 area to work together, which I have to say we do do. Um, and, you know, universities, colleges, adult community learning providers do work really well together, but there is still more that could be done. And, and I think Wales needs more to be done in order to deliver what we need kind of for the economy and, and society, really. So you both you both talked about the uh, the new commission, the Commission for Tertiary uh, Education uh, and Research. You know, those of us who work uh, deeply in Welsh politics will know uh, that this has been brewing for quite some time, but I'm, I'm not sure it's necessarily received a huge uh, huge amount of press attention. Would, would you be able to explain a little bit about what it is, uh, what it will do, who will be the membership, et cetera, of that body? I'd, either of you want to do it? Josh, do you want to go? Yeah, go on. I'll, I'll have, a, have a bash at it. So um, so the, um, the process that led to the commission being established has been going on for a long time. So uh, Welsh Government started talking about this, I think, in the, the middle of the last decade, really, 2015, 2016. And it came from a review, I think, Michelle, it was the Hazelcon review, wasn't it? By uh, Professor Hazelcon, who looked at it and they used examples from around the world on how to organise post-compulsory education better. And I think the, the main one that came out at the time was New Zealand, I think where there was a lot of evidence of a single body really driving the, the sort of post-compulsory systems, so that's work-based learning, community learning, FE and HE, into a sort of seamless system. Um, the legislation, as you can imagine, took a long time to be developed and COVID really uh, slowed that up. Welsh Government made it a priority during COVID and the, the Act was passed recently. We're now at a position where we've got the uh, Commission, so everyone calls it CETA, that's the uh, the acronym, the Commission for Tertiary Education and Research. We've got the, the Commission ready to be launched. It's sort of in a shadow form at the moment with a chief exec appointed, but very, very recently. But the idea being by April next year, it'll be up and running and it'll take... HEFCO, so the Higher Education Funding Council for Wales, and the staff that deal with further education, work-based learning and uh, adult community learning into a single organisation from April next year that will fund and regulate all, um, all post-16 provision. Now, the interesting thing about it, I mean, that's just the legislation, right? Legislation is just the start of any reform. The proof of the pudding is always in the eating, I think. Um, so we're going to see the staff move over, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything changes. But the opportunity, I think, on this is huge. So Michelle already mentioned progression opportunities. At the moment, you know, you've got different teams working on this at Welsh Government. They come up with different funding formula, different targets, different criteria that ends up with a system that really speaks to each individual part what we could end up with here is something that takes a much more holistic, much bigger picture view of it um, and starts to think about these things thematically. So to give you a practical example, lifelong learning, which is what we're here to, to talk about today. Lifelong learning is 
uh, on the face of the legislation, there is a commitment to promote or do to promote lifelong learning. The commission could, for example, say, right, we're going to have a team focused around lifelong learning. We're going to make it a theme. We're going to bring in expert evidence. And then everything we do, be that in FE, work-based learning or HE, is going to follow that golden thread of life, lifelong learning. And that'll drive change. So that's the kind of opportunity we've got. But again, at the moment, it's an opportunity in front of us, not necessarily something delivered. And I think that's the challenge of the, the new commission coming in. Michelle, what, what are some of the objectives of, of the Commission in terms of deliverables? And do you think it's going to be able to satisfy those objectives? Do you think it's been resourced and staffed and provided enough attention in order to deliver those 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 aims? You know, the the um intention is is admirable and I think it is the absolute right thing to be doing. I think there's going to be some tricky initial kind of bumps in the road. I think that's inevitable. Uh, you know, I think all of the individual component parts of the post-16 sector are going to want reassurance of some element of stability, particularly in this kind of transition phase. So, you know, it's understandable that the HE sector, the FE sector are going to want to know, certainly in the short term, is our funding still going to be the same as it currently is, both in terms of the amount, but also the process for all of that, because, you know, there's a lot of complexity in how in how universities and FE colleges and things are funded. And I think really the, the, the key is going to be in, in making sure that all parts of the sector feel stable and engaged, but also are open to a potential for working differently in the future. What I feel would be a missed opportunity is if the Commission were to establish itself and to kind of carry on funding all the component parts through separate streams and to sort of carry on working in that way. And I really hope that won't happen. As Josh said, there's a big opportunity here to think about the things that run through the sector. Um, so the skills agenda would be one of them. Lifelong learning opportunities is another. And think about how across a post-16 sector we might meet those challenges. So, you know, Josh mentioned evidence, and I think that's going to be key in thinking for the Commission to be thinking about what data and evidence is it bringing in to think about what we need in Wales for the future? What skills will people need for the future, for work, for life? What do people want to learn? How do people want to learn? And how are we going to support providers to educate people in the way they want to learn in this day and age? And how then the delivery of those things will be prioritised and funded? So I really do think there's huge potential. It's also worth mentioning that six forms are included in this as well, which is really ambitious and, you know, something that I think kind of sometimes gets forgotten a bit in, in some of this. And that's that's a really big challenge as well to think about working with a part of the school sector in that way. So we, we are not, you know, underestimating the scale of the challenge, but I think that potentially Wales could be really leading the way here in thinking about how we are organising funding and obviously regulating post-16 um, education. So there is huge potential. Um, I think the balance needs to be struck in that initial phase between stability being kind of there for the people who need it and having that future kind of ambition in, in sight. Well, we've got plenty to talk about regarding funding, but I'm not going to launch into that just yet. I'm going to hand over to Kerry to do some talk about skills. As someone who's in various hats on, worked on skills plan over uh, a few years. One of the things Welsh Government have done is the, the net zero skills plan, as we try and take you know, advantage of the opportunities from renewable energy and uh, environmental aspects of the, the economy. What has been your assessment here? Is, is this simply the Welsh Government doing what it thinks it should be doing? 
or is it really a genuine attempt to address those kind of skills deficits? I would say from our perspective on on any element of skills planning, the key thing really is thinking about how we can upskill and reskill people who are already in the workforce. And I think there needs to be more of a focus on that and also um, a focus on enabling employers to kind of identify what they need and supporting that. And in therefore delivering that provision, we need to think about the types of learning people want. So things like short courses, micro credentials, that type of flexible bite-sized provision, ways that people can get the skills they need within the job they have, or potentially the skills they might need for a future job is gonna be absolutely essential. And areas like net zero, I think are really key there because it does feel in some ways new, I suppose, and different. And I think that means there is an opportunity to do things in maybe a new and different way. We know that empl you know, employers tell us year on year that they are having trouble recruiting and that they are having trouble upskilling their workforce. And a lot of that is down to the type of provision that is available. So we, we naturally will always advocate for flexible learning because that's what we do. And I think that as we are facing the skills challenge, it, it is incumbent upon us to think about how we can deliver as much of education and learning as flexibly as possible in order to make it available to more people and to more businesses to be able to take advantage of it because people cannot release staff for a year at a time to go off and you know learn something it has to be something that can be done in that flexible way josh michelle mentioned in an earlier answer around some of the responsibilities here with the the economic minister you know, some of these skills plans, it's some have been said that they've come a little bit too late. The UK and Wales lagging behind other European countries. Do you, do you think the way we've got it set up it is working or, or has the Welsh government lagged behind? I think it's a really interesting uh, time to look at some of this. Okay, so the last... 10 years has seen really dramatic shifts in the context for education and skills in the UK. And I have to say, a lot of that has been driven by England. So what you've seen in England is quite a lot of divergence, uh, particularly around sort of FE and work-based learning, where they've basically created an English system and gone off and done their own things. Um, and that's left big question marks then in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, because the sorts of systems they've set up have been quite England only, and they haven't really been ported over to the other parts of the UK. That's given us a bit of an existential question, if I'm honest with you, right? Because before we used to create a lot of our qualifications and a lot of the course content in a sort of four-nation way where we'd have organisations, they might have been Sector Skills Councils many years ago, or UKCES. These types of organisations have brought employers together with um, qualification providers to come up with the right courses that reflected what we needed in the economy. All of that framework, all of that, you know, institutional memory has gone. And in England, they've gone to a much more employer-led kind of system, which has just left us with a question mark. What do you do in Wales? Now, Welsh Gov, to their credit, have tried to grapple with this question mark and they've started to review individual types of qualifications. So we've had review of health and social care and construction quals, but it's quite a resource intensive thing and takes a long time to do. OK, and 
you know, a lot of employers work across the border and, you know, see the two systems sort of diverging a little bit and ask the question of, right, how responsive is qualifications in Wales? You might have seen, I think it was last week, was published the uh, vocational um, quals review that was led by uh, Sharon Lusher, I think it was. And one of the key things in that was just trying to grapple with how we create this, you know, architecture in Wales so that we can start to have responsive qualifications and content being developed because we're not quite there yet. And this term of, you know, made in Wales qualifications or made for Wales qualifications comes up quite often. I think it's a really tricky thing to get right, actually. And at the moment, we haven't quite got that capacity there. Um, with a, a previous hat on from an employer perspective, I'd say there's there's a lot of work to be done to ensure employers are properly engaged and are coming out of this thinking the people that we're training are really doing what we need to, but it's the right journey we're on. So the other question you raised, Kerry, if I may just quickly about green skills, I think that's a really interesting question because what you're talking about there is future-proofing. And I think that's really difficult to do when you've got to have a system that's responsive which we've already discussed but also you've got to have a, an eye on what the future is going to have and what the future is going to hold um, and what employers are going to want in terms of skills in in that future so i think it's really hard to try and second guess that but we need to start thinking and we need to start collecting data on what that future might be because there is a real risk that we miss the boat in terms of what the economy might be like in the future perhaps we'll get to it a bit later but for me a real obvious one is things like artificial intelligence right it's going to completely change our working environment in the future we need our qualifications to respond to that we, we, we are we are going to get to that so you don't don't ruin our script all right i won't ruin it and then i'll ruin it i'll leave it okay uh there's there's plenty i could say on uh the green job side of it at one time my hat was the green job strategy manager for welsh government and the, it was a very interesting period at the very start of that kind of rollout in terms of green skills, though, Josh, I, I, I do I do agree agree with you in terms of it's very difficult to future proof against the trends that employers are seeking out. But if you compare Wales to places like Scotland, which, you know, have been running courses on green skills for an incredibly long time, have that infrastructure around there to the point that I think a lot of our uh, skills providers here are going to be looking to learn from what's going on in Scotland in terms of the green skills agenda. Couldn't there have been a degree to which the Welsh Government could have predicted this move some time ago? Yeah, you could predict this kind of thing, I think. But then the question you've got to ask is, is the demand there for the green skills at the moment as well? I don't know the answer to that question, so I won't, I won't guess at it. But, you know, employers will always push the pace on this, right? So they will try and get the skills that they need. And one way or another, they'll get their way through it. That might be through FE, might be through work-based learning. If not, they'll find other ways to do it. So there's also private provision that they'll use. It's obviously more costly and doesn't have the outcomes you want then, right? But they'll find a way to do it. The key thing is the system's responsive enough to keep up with that change because otherwise that's when you see things getting left behind. And when employers can't find the skills they want, they'll go elsewhere. So, you know, that that's the challenge, I think, Matt, on this one. In recent months, we've seen some of the kind of labour market statistics come out with Wales having a lower rate of employment compared to other areas. Is, is that a legacy of our kind of uh, skills investment or lack of investment or is it, just part of that wider, broader economic uncertainty? I think we need to recognise, you know, and, and this is particularly interesting for us, I guess, at the OU as, as a four-nation university. So we operate across 
you know, all parts of the UK. And, and we're, you know, therefore thinking about how we can make our offer um, responsive to the needs of different parts of the UK. And I guess that, you know, Wales does certainly have unique challenges um, and, you know, it has a different employer makeup than, you know, you would have in England. So naturally, when we're thinking about what are the skills needs for Wales, what what is the offer that would work here and what what is it that, you know, we need, we have to think differently about that. Um, and yeah, I suppose that in terms of, you know, the, the employment statistics, I think from, from our point of view, a key thing there really is thinking about opportunities for people to then dip into learning at any point in their life, because you've also got people who are underemployed and people who are not in a job that is the job that, you know, is, is right for them. So that's the other thing that we, you know, we need to think about. There, there are also plenty of people who I think, um, are are juggling multiple demands on their time and you know are maybe in a position to do some learning but they would not be in a position to drop everything and you know go and do a three-year university degree course or people who cannot leave their locality for various reasons but want to be able to do a different job in their locality so we for example, um, offer nursing qualification. And, you know, we are able to do that remotely in a way that other institutions don't, which means that you can train to be a nurse staying where you are and stay in your community rather than having to move away to, you know, a traditional institution to do that, um, which means that that occupation then becomes something that is available to a much wider range of people. And there are a whole, you know, raft of people out there who want to do these jobs. But sometimes in order to access that employment, the training and, and, you know, the skills that you need to do it are not provided in a way that suits your current lifestyle and the, the kind of the requirements on your time. That's the bit for me with the, the commission and, and, you know, the future look at all of this about what are we actually dealing with here in terms of a population and the skills that we're going to need for the future and where we need people to be. And we cannot just focus on young people. We can't just assume that if we crack it for 18 to 21 year olds and get it right for them, that that will solve the problem because the demographics just don't play that out. We we need to think about how we can make more of the skills of people who are currently in the workforce or who are currently active in some way, shape or form, but might want to do something different. Uh, we can't just leave it all to that kind of traditional 18 to 21 sort of pipeline. So um, we've been doing lots of work on the labour market in the Learning and Work Institute. It's one of the things we, we focus on quite a bit. And in particular, I've been doing some research on the impact of the labour market in Wales, how it looks different to other parts of the UK. It's really interesting. So you're absolutely right, Kerry. We typically have an employment rate that's about 5% lower than elsewhere in the UK. And um, the the reason for that isn't unemployment, as, as you might expect. It's economic inactivity, which is a huge, huge challenge in Wales, much bigger challenge than uh, other parts of the UK. It's interesting to give it a, a sort of international context as well. So the UK is typically a pretty good performer in terms of employment rates, tends to be at the top of the sort of G7 there or thereabouts, but isn't best in class. So if you look at the Netherlands or Japan, they have higher employment rates again. If you compare Wales to other countries, we're actually quite similar to the USA in terms of employment rates. Um, we're a bit better than France, Spain. So, you know, it's not a complete disaster either. Um, when you pick into the economic inactivity figures, what you find is 
a large part of it comes down to demographics. So we've got a lot of people who are uh, of an older age who typically have quite uh, serious work-limiting health conditions. In particular, in the last few years, mental health as a problem has, has really, really risen dramatically, causing people to leave the labour market in Wales and other responsibilities like you know caring responsibilities, those sorts of things. So to some extent, this is partly a legacy of deindustrialization and the type of economy we've got. But there's also something much more structural happening there that we haven't quite got to, to grips with. Now, what I'm coming to in terms of learning is that learning is part of that picture. So... You know, learning later in life, learning in your 50s, for example, might be part of the response to getting more people into economic activity, into employment. But we've got to conceive it as such. At the moment, I don't think we've got the join up quite right in terms of tackling economic in economic inactivity between learning, employment support services through things like the DWP housing as a key issue, childcare, social care, you know, all of these things go into the pot. Um, and, and that's really what we need to think about in a Wales sort of strategy, I think, if we're going to tackle that economic inactivity, because otherwise we're going to end up with, you know, poor economic performance that continues uh, year after year. Um, and then the last bit of that goes back to Michelle's point about employers. So in the UK and in Wales, employers tend to invest a lot less on skills and learning than they do internationally, which is a huge, huge challenge. And in Wales in particular, we tend to have a much less productive economy. So for every uh, widget you produce across the UK, uh, we produce point, you know, 85% of a widget in Wales because our productivity per hour worked is that much lower. And skills are clearly part of the answer to that. So yeah, there's a lot of issues in the mix there. But I think if we are serious about tackling and changing the economy, skills has got to be a key part of it. Now, Matt, Matt's skill of interrupting my script flow is excellent, Matt. <laughs> Josh, just on a, a stats point there, just to, my understanding, though, of the Welsh productivity figure is that actually compared to other English regions, we do not so bad, but the southeast of England essentially just blows the productivity of the rest of the UK out of the water, which means that we do quite bad compared to England because of that. Am I wrong? No, you, you, you're sort of partly right. There's an element of that. As with everything, there's lies, damn lies and statistics, <laughs> isn't it? Right. So uh, if, if you look at Wales's global uh, GVA figure, because that's the one that gets produced. So that's a measure of all the stuff that's produced in Wales. We tend to have about 74% of the UK average. Now, there's no doubt that number is, fig is skewed quite heavily by London and the Southeast and a host of other factors, right? But if you look at the key one, which is GVA per hour worked or GDP per hour worked, that's that's your labour productivity, right? So that's looking at the people who are in work and how much they produce. And Wales does tend to lag behind the UK average in that. Um, so again, there will be some of that that's driven by London and the Southeast, but we're also not sort of topping class on it. But I think it's interesting because the story is quite different, right? So 85% versus 74 is quite a big difference. And actually, we're in the pack a bit more. So our actual workers, when they're in work, are actually doing quite a lot in terms of productivity compared to international examples. The problem we've got is, going back to Kerry's point, our labour market is less rosy looking, shall we say, compared to the rest of the UK. So we've got fewer people in work. So your aggregate statistics then look a bit worse. So I think that's the the challenge we're trying to tackle, really, is is to get over that. Michelle, did you want to? I've got another question for you. Did you want to pick up on any of what John talked, uh, Josh talked about there? 
Uh, no, that's fine. I am happy to leave the stats to Josh. <laughs> oh, Josh, you mentioned uh, in your earlier answer about the independent review into vocational qualifications, which came out last week, 33 recommendations. I only briefly scanned them, and I, I note that number one is very Welsh in that the first recommendation is to have a strategy on uh, vocational qualifications. So uh, another document for people to work on. But was there anything specific out of those 33 which you, you could draw out? You know, I think it's really interesting you mentioned the strategy point. Um, I think we're all, we all sigh when we hear we need a strategy for anything these days, don't we? Because there's a big gap often between strategy and what happens on the ground. But I actually think the um, the review is, is probably on, on the money on this one. So when you look at um, vocational quals, it's never really been looked at from a Welsh perspective because we've always been part of this UK-wide landscape, I think. And we've gone through that position of, of change and we we could do it, zooming out a little bit and thinking, well, what do vocational quals mean for us in a Welsh context? And the reason I, I mention that is if you look at other uh, countries around the world, but particularly in Europe, you take Germany, for example, they've got a really clear idea of what vocational training is. They, they have what's called the IVET, CVET system, so initial vocational uh, education and training and continuing vocational education and training. And the idea that is you teach in different ways, depending on who it is you're trying to teach. So, you know, you do things differently, they're funded differently, and one part of that is aimed at getting people who are in work to up their skills, which seems quite relevant to us, doesn't it? Relevant to the conversation we're talking about today. So, so yeah, I think there is actually a point in that um that recommendation. Um, but as always, the key thing then is once you've got a strategy, what you do with it. And as I say, resourcing a change is going to be quite a struggle for CETA in its early years, but it's something it probably needs to look at and do, I think. Um, oh yeah, no, one thing I would just add on that is I think that um, if we are going to take a kind of wholesale look at the vocational picture, I think it's really important to think about what, what message we're sending to people who go down that vocational route um, about, you know, where that ends. And that we can quite often, you know, focus on vocational qualifications um, at, you know, certain parts of the kind of, you know, qualification spectrum. But then once people get to a certain level, that kind of stops. So, you know, you can do an apprenticeship to a certain point. And then actually the routes available for a degree apprenticeship are really quite few and far between. You know, Wales is, is supporting some, but there aren't that many of them. And I think we need to be thinking about if we are going to put a focus on vocational education and think about, you know, and this is another question for the commission, think about what that, you know, what message that sends. You know, we want to make sure that people who learn in that way and are undertaking work-based learning, going through that vocational route, have the same opportunities for levels of learning as everybody else. And that doesn't just stop at a cutoff point. And we say, oh, vocational education is good for you here. But now, you know, you either need to move on to a totally different type of learning or that's it. So I warned you all earlier in the pod that we would be moving on to a section on funding. And luckily for you, Michelle, it's all about funding in the university sector. So we've talked a lot about resources, but we're going to talk about finances here. So obviously, we all know in the last few years that the university sector has been uh, experiencing incredible financial insecurity, or at least flux. We all know the well-rehearsed concerns about the loss of EU funding. But how would you describe the state of the Welsh university sector currently? Um, I think it's difficult. I think um, as the Open University, um, we inevitably come at this from a slightly different perspective to our colleagues who traditionally teach in the full-time sector and particularly um, are, are the other institutions who um, attract international students. 
because I think the international student situation is is one that is proving particularly challenging for universities, coupled obviously with with the research um, picture. Um, it is it is undoubtedly a difficult time for institutions, and you know there are certainly challenges. And I do feel that the new commission in thinking about you know priorities across HEFE um, is inevitably going to be hearing from all different parts of the post sixteen sector about challenges because. You know, I know that colleagues in, in FE and, and, and adult community learning would say that they come, they, you know, they have a challenging funding environment as well. You know, speaking, I guess, particularly about the part-time sector, um, you know, I, I alluded earlier to the, you know, the huge increase in student numbers that we've seen um, as a result of the, the funding support available to students. And that is absolutely fantastic. But we are seeing more of those students coming to us um, who need a more intense level of support you know, in order to be able to succeed and success looks different for everyone. It's important to remember that, you know, success isn't always coming away with your degree. Success might be completing your module or gaining a specific qualification, but we are seeing that students are needing more of our support in order to be able to succeed. And that costs more money, frankly. So um, it is it is also a challenging time for us in the part-time sector where, you know, our funding institutionally has not increased um, and that does create a kind of challenging funding environment. So where you've already got that challenging funding environment within the HE sector between full-time, part-time and all of the other priorities that are hugely important, you know, the commission does have a challenge ahead when it's then looking at putting those alongside, you know, other bits of the sector. But that's why I think we need to try to think about this differently and be thinking about what are the skills we need? What, you know, how, how does Wales want to be funding people to learn? Because we are always going to be rehearsing arguments around that's my money, that's your money. And institutions are never going to say, sure, take some of our cash, put it into your bit. But, um, you know, at some point, I think we all need to be able to to think about what's right for Wales, I suppose. So I think it's worth reflecting back on what Michelle said earlier on around the importance of FE, work-based learning and adult community learning and feeding up to HE as well. And just to give you the context on funding and, and the numbers there, right? So if you went back to 2012, 2013, um, you had about 110,000 part-time learners in FE. Uh, 2021, 2022, we are around 55,000. So a huge, huge drop-off. If you look at uh, local authority, community learning, just over 30,000 in 2012, 2013. We're now talking about just over 10,000 in 21, 22. So I mentioned austerity earlier on and the impact. It's been really, really significant in part-time learning. It's really changed the landscape quite significantly. Um, and I think, again, there's no quick fix to a lack of resources and a lack of money, but we really do need to think about what the context of that means for all types of learning, really. And it's a challenge for the, the commission, I think, going forward is it's how they grapple with that and how they create something a bit bit better. You know, how we get those numbers back up. There is one policy that and very understandably no one ever seems to want to go near in this sector, which is uh, the question of tuition fees. Obviously, universities have been dealing with the same level of tuition fees now for over a decade. Do you think there's any need to revisit that conversation about whether the current level of tuition fees paid by students is sustainable for the university sector, Michelle? As you say, it's incredibly tricky. We are um, inevitably part of, you know, a, certainly in England and Wales sort of set up in, in, in respect of a lot of the issues around that. 
Um, and, and, you know, on some aspects of, of, of that, the, the Welsh Government have kind of, you know, stuck to their own, own policies. Um, I think it's inevitable that institutions will be looking at what they can charge and would be advocating to be able to charge more because of, of you know, the, the, the situation they're finding themselves in, particularly with the international student kind of situation and, and the research funding situation. But I actually think that in a way, as universities, all of us, I guess, have been doing the same thing for quite a long time. And, you know, there are wider questions, I think, about um, how universities are operating and what they could be doing differently. Uh, that doesn't mean they'd necessarily need to charge less for it. And I think something that we talk about a lot is, you know, the idea that just because something's distance learning doesn't make it cheaper. You know, it's it's different. The part time picture, obviously, our, our fees are significantly lower. Um, we have a particular um, issue in our sector around the amount that students can borrow in order to study part time. Um, and that amount hasn't increased for about 11 years. So the minister quite recently made a, a commitment to increase what, what we call the part time fee loan cap, which means that um, students will be able to borrow more money um, to, to study part time. Um, which would mean that um, if institutions wanted to, they could put in a moderate um, fee increase, um, which may go some way to incentivizing other institutions to, to to kind of look at their part-time provision again. But I do think in the in the full-time sector, that is a tricky conversation around fees. Um, but I understand why universities are looking at it. But I would hope that the commission maybe look at th that bigger picture and think about kind of you know a whole, a whole scale look at, at that and what universities do how and why josh so you started talking about ai earlier um but it's a really interesting question it's something that we're seeing more and more when we're discussing education uh, and work what kind of impact do you think ai is going to have on those sectors in the future. So I've heard that uh, AI is going to be really good at hosting podcasts. So I don't know. If I hope not, any... mate. <laughs> I hope not. I'm only joking. So um... <laughs> Matt, Matt is actually an AI generated avatar. He's not real. <laughs> um, right. Hang on. Let me get my serious head back on and answer your question. <laughs> So AI, I think, is going to have a really significant impact on all of our lives, right? It's a little bit like when the internet was created in the beginning, you know, everyone could see some possibilities with it. And then you have this huge series of hype around the early 2000s. And then it settles down into becoming this thing that everybody does and everybody's used to doing in their day-to-day -day lives. We're going to see a similar experience with AI, I think. There's all... A lot of sort of commentary at the moment around, you know, AI taking jobs or uh, AI fundamentally changing sectors. I mean, some of that will come to pass, but it is never as simple as that. The labour market is much more dynamic. And what we're more likely to see, I think, is current jobs get better or people get better at their jobs because they're able to use AI in their jobs to do things more productively. So from a Welsh perspective, you know, we talked about productivity earlier on. 
it's an opportunity, um, an opportunity that we need to cultivate and we need to craft a response around. But what I think it means in terms of learning and in particular adult learning, because let's be honest, lots of the people who are going to be retraining with this are going to be people already in the workplace. It means we're going to have to have a lot more emphasis on training people to work in new ways. And that is going to involve a lot more lifelong learning, I think. So for me, what I'd really like to see Welsh Government do is set out really proactive policy around this and think, okay, we're going to have an AI revolution at some point. It's going to have an impact on Welsh economy and Welsh society. How do we get on the front curve, on the front foot on that and get ahead of the curve and start to shape it for our own benefit? Thankfully, they did do a review on this actually in 2019, I think it was, led by Professor Phil Brown at Cardiff University. And he actually covered all of the right points. So I think the recommendations they're sort of there it just needs you know mainstreaming incorporating into what we do and and someone to get hold of it politically i think um but it's going to be a real real challenge you know a double-edged sword in a lot of ways isn't isn't that what we were talking about earlier though you've got that review the strategy it's then where does it go into the delivery mode because you say he did that review in 2019 he did yeah that's only four years now yeah, Some, yeah, a few things happened in the middle, though. Got to give them. There's, 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 you know, a couple of years of interesting policy landscape we're sort of dealing with there. Michelle, did you have any thoughts on AI and where it might take us? <laughs> I think with some, with some of this stuff, you know, as, as Josh was just saying, it's about we need to be quicker. You know, we we need to be able to to adapt more quickly t- to this. And, you know, I think um, a quote I heard recently, you know, AI isn't going to take your job, but someone who knows how to use AI is, you know, I think this is this is the thing. And Josh made a really good point about it is it is people already in the workplace who are going to need to learn to work in a different way. Doesn't mean they're going to need to do a completely different job, but going to need to. And these mythical people aren't somewhere. These are us. This is me. This is Josh. This is you guys. Right. Kind of. You know, we we are all going to need to learn to work in a different way, and it goes back to the point I made earlier about how we can't we can't put all this on current kind of A level students and say, well, when they go to uni, they'll learn to do the AI and then they'll fix everything. You know, but we'll also protect our jobs and keep them as they are. It echoes, you know, the issue around when we then do need to train people who are already in a job to do that job differently. How do we do that? How do we fund that? What courses are available? You know, how, how is that learning being delivered so that they can still be in that job and do the learning? Um, it also makes me think a bit about, you know, the the creation of the Open University. So, you know, over 50 years ago, the, the idea of a university that you could, you know, the University of the Air, as it was called back then, was hugely radical. And, you know, there was a lot of criticism of it back then. Oh, you can't get a degree by watching the telly. Well, actually, yeah, you can. And, it, you know, it strikes me a little bit that as part of all of this AI stuff, we we need to be thinking about how people want to learn. And, you know, there's a lot of criticism these days of, of people, young people and older people on screens all the time. But it it does, you know, you, you can you can get a lot from being on a screen. You can learn from being on a screen. And I think, you know, institutions do need to think differently about how they are delivering their learning. That includes us. The OU needs to, you know, continue to adapt as well. But traditional institutions are delivering their learning in the same way they have been for hundreds of years. You know, come here and learn, receive your wisdom from us and go out into the world. And I think, you know, 
that is certainly not adapting quickly. Um, and, you know, perhaps, you know, part of what we all as a kind of collective endeavor need to do is to is to think more about, you know, how people are going to want to learn and, and how that provision can be can be offered. Okay, and just to add to that, if I can, um, I think you give some fantastic examples there, Michelle. And anyone who's seen my Instagram account, I'm thinking you in this instance, Kerry, will know that I quite like old computers and old technology, right? There was a great thing that happened during the 80s with the BBC Micro, which I don't know if the OU was linked to that. It probably was, right? But it was the idea that they created a TV series around a computer that anyone could learn from. And they sort of created a next generation of people uh, and their parents quite often that sit, sit around the TV, watch by the BBC Micro, learn how to use a computer in an era where computers weren't mainstream. It's that kind of thing we need to be thinking about, I think. And the dangers here, you know, Wales is a country that has seen lots of technologies become obsolete at the cost of great human suffering, right? I'll give you a great example. We built an economy based on coal mining only for that technology to become essentially obsolete when uh, oil and other things were discovered, right? Um, that left huge scars because we didn't handle that transition well at all. We never thought about how we transitioned from one state of affairs to the other. It just happened and it was left to happen. Let's not make that mistake again. You know, we're going to have a transformational change. Decarbonisation, we mentioned earlier on, is one element of it. AI is another. Let's get on the front foot and start to think, how do we reposition people during their working lives so that we can adapt to what's coming down the track? Thank you both for coming to speak to us this week. Uh, it's been really, really interesting. Before we go, I've got one more question for you, though. It's, it's always my uh, favourite question to ask in these instances. Uh, whilst we accept that in policy areas there is never a silver bullet, um, please deliver your silver bullet now. What would you do if you could ask one? If you could have one policy ask uh, of a future Welsh government to really, uh, really deliver on all the things we've talked about today in terms of lifelong learning, uh, Josh. I was dreading that you'd come to me first because I haven't got time to think now. Okay, given this lifelong learning week. I think the one thing Welsh government could do, and maybe this is something for CETA actually, is take that lifelong learning duty in the commission really seriously, organise around it, bring people together and get us all thinking about how we can make this better. So I'm not going to be too utopian with this. I think that's the space we need to get into. We've got the policy, let's focus on the delivery. Bob, Michelle? Yeah, similarly, I think um, I would uh, create the right structure to enable people to learn at any point in their life that they want to. So, you know, and that would mean the right balance of funding between the individual and the state, you know, and we'd have to work that through. But I, I genuinely feel that, um, and I do think that the Welsh Government does have this ambition at its heart, but we don't have the structure right to enable that to happen. So, you know, at a community level at the moment, if you want to learn things, the options for what you can actually learn that is funded and delivered are really, really minimal. Um, and I think that what I would like to see is 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 a world where somebody can just suddenly, you know, can decide I need to learn this right now. And there is a way for them to be able to do it, um, because that's what that's what we're all going to need. Wonderful. Again, thank you both so much for coming to speak to us this evening. If people want to hear more from you, where can they go to find you? Usually I say on Twitter, it's not called that anymore, on X or any other platforms. Michelle? Um, I'm actually not on X at the moment. Wise, <laughs> wise. But you can uh, find out more about the Open University at, um, at OU Cymru.
Wonderful. Josh? Also not on X or Twitter, so you'll have Such to go to uh, people. at LearnWorkCamry is the uh, Learning Works uh, to handle, I think, or X handle, I should say. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you again so much. If you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please don't forget to find Hiraith on all the socials at Pod. You can go to our website, www.walespolitics.com. And thank you very much for supporting us with your ears. But if you would like to do so with your wallet, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash Pod. Thank you for listening to Hiraith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.